0: What's going on, People People? This is Krish Dinesh Kumar, and I'm a producer for the show you're tuning into, From a People Perspective. This is a podcast about fascinating people, how they got to where they are, and where they're going, all from the lens of HR, recruitment, and operations. This show is hosted by Martin Hawk. Before getting started with today's episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. Thanks to Wealth Simple for work providing group RRSP and benefit programs for employers to offer, Spring Law, providing virtual support for your smallest and largest employment law issues, HUME, a beautiful and easy-to-use HRIS platform, and the Leadership Agency, providing awarding recruitment for startups using innovative approaches. We've got a great episode ahead of us, and hope you enjoy it.
1: all right everybody uh thanks for listening to another episode of from a people perspective i'm martin hawk your host and today we've got an amazing guest Elsawi sawi yeah yeah and uh really excited to have you here today also
2: thank you martin it's a pleasure to be here
1: likewise um so i think the best place to start here uh, is kind of how we got introduced, and I love, um, I love recruiting because of this. Mm. And it's when you meet someone that you uh, something stands out. Maybe many things stands out about that individual, and I think that's exactly the case with with yourself. I had the pleasure of being introduced to you through the the candidate application process and uh we were hiring for a design leader at caseware and uh we got really close we got really close but uh couldn't make things work at the end but uh thankfully we have stayed in touch and um no glad you're open to to doing this uh episode with me
2: thank you and um you're absolutely right i mean it's uh it's these moments that you know um that that make a big difference and and some meaningful relationships that come out of them. So thank you for staying in touch.
1: No, of course. Um, I think one of the the interesting things about, um, you know, even doing something like this is it's almost like an interview round two, whereas we get the opportunity to go a little deeper and broader and even more philosophical than you Mm. might in a traditional interview process. And I wish interview processes actually got to that in the first round or you got to be a little bit more philosophical with candidates just because the second you get into the core belief system of an individual, Mm -hmm. that's where you start seeing, you know, has this person truly thought about their own values? Does this person truly think about a company's values? And I think the thing that sparked the light bulb above my head in terms of like, Hey, would it, you know, be interesting to do a podcast together? Is that intersection between, you know, from my lens as a recruiter, uh, and a recruitment leader, I see there being a massive intersection between design and recruitment. And we talked about this in the interview process. Once we got a bit more comfortable with each other was like, Oftentimes, those two circles on a Venn diagram never really overlap, even though you've got people within the organization that could truly assist you in designing, like, a really good interview process or a candidate experience process.
2: Absolutely. And so
1: that's, you know, just for context for the listeners, that's kind of what kicked off this idea and and why we're here today and what we're going to talk about. It's going to be about how we can... You know, folks walking away from this conversation are A, going to get to know you a bit better and they're also going to get to know, walk away with some ideas on how they can take some small steps and bring design thinking in. And if they're at a tech company or even if they're at a larger corporation, there's still someone that's focused on design that they can probably tap on the shoulder. And in, in a certain extent, there'll be a refreshing conversation be like, oh, hey, do you want to talk about aspects of design in relation to this and it's actually going to take that person away from like the nitty-gritty day-to-day of whatever it is that they're doing Mm -hmm. and and kind of weave them into a a larger area of of the business Uh, but before we dive into all that we obviously need to loosen things up here a little bit and uh, start off with my trusty icebreaker so Let's say you're in the attic, you're in the garage, you're in, you're, you've are in you opened up the closet. Wherever it is, you keep things that you don't look at on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And you find a dusty box of records, a dusty box of CDs, a dusty box of MP3 players that you don't use anymore. Whatever the medium was. Um, what can't you get rid of? from a musical taste perspective let's assume it's an album what what album or or piece of music uh
2: are you just really well connected to um, so i wasn't prepared for for that question <laughs> but, uh um so one thing is i i stopped listening to music and it's that's it's an interesting angle and we can get into why yeah uh, but but in general, I'll take it one level up and I'll make it more around something that you can't get rid of or something that you hold dearly in general. And I think that changed by time. So, so a lot of the times in the past, uh, the object, whatever it is, in this case, even you, you, you apply it to, to the thing that you're keeping, was the container of the memory. So I'll keep t-shirts from um, uh, travel uh, time, souvenirs that I got from people. Okay, souvenirs that I got from people or, um, uh, you, you know, you know, things that that will remind me um, of, of uh, certain memories of my life. So I think, <clears throat> I think by time I grew to uh, appreciate a sense of uh, minimalism mm. and realizing that it's the memory that stays. It's not the object. So I, I was able to let go a nice. little bit more, but I still have a box. And if I was looking uh, into that box, it's it's actually in the basement, in the in the cold room, uh, in the basement, in a in a storage room, and it's got uh, it's got some of the uh, clothes that I used to wear um, during, I would say, difficult times, but but were were um, character building times. So I have one from a uh, security job that I had, and it was it was a night shift, and it was a very difficult job. Had one that reminded me of how in school I was uh, working in an ice rink uh, arena and driving a zamboni machine uh, at the time, which was which was quite cool. Um, So there's there's these these elements uh, of it. I even have a t-shirt from lifeguarding uh, when I was a lifeguard in Disney, and that's where I actually met my wife. So there's there's lots of these like subtle uh, small and probably things that I'll never use again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm still in the process of, uh, you know, trying to, uh, scale down and, and keep it to, uh, and separate the memory from the object.
1: Nice. Nice. I think, uh, well, the minimalism piece resonates with me a lot. I went on a huge minimalism kick for a bit and mm. wanted to get into tiny homes and all that sort of thing. And now with with two kids uh thinking you know what tiny home maybe we can scratch that off the list i think a bigger home would be helpful um and uh but in terms of i i like the idea of like being able to let go of a memory but also still keeping certain ones that remind you and so what's interesting about what you just said and you know in terms of and i'd and, and love it for you to kind of share this in a second here but you know zamboni driver Uh, security guard, you know, that doesn't find its way onto your LinkedIn profile. And as a people ops person and as a recruiter, there are defining moments and skills and lessons uh, that you learn along the way. It doesn't matter, you know, what the role is. Um, Mm -hmm. And what it's really cool to see is like you went from doing that stuff to being a robotics instructor to working in you know, some of the world's largest audit and accounting firms to, you know, now working in, working in banks and e-commerce and, and retail commerce and, and becoming a founder. So I guess, you know, in, in those roles, um, very early on, did you have any idea that
2: you'd be where you are today? Uh, no, but I knew that that was not where I wanted to be at the time. Hmm. So, so, so I think it's uh, you, you never kind of had this, uh, or I never had this crystal ball of here's exactly how it's gonna go like, um, and all the the re-adjustments along the journey and the pivots that you had to make. Uh, but but when I looked up myself, you know, and 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 if I go through the list, I mean, it, it's it was oh, I kind of gave you a bit of a hint on them. But it's also things like working in a library, shelving books, where you kind of enjoy the process, but you ask yourself, and, and it's probably a great job for for some people, but for me, it was do I see myself doing this? And 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 what do I like about it? And it's it's a bit of a self discovery process. Mm-hmm. So I would say no, I didn't expect it to be that way, especially the working in the financial service industry. It's it's not the kind of thing that you necessarily uh, you know. Yeah, unless you you studied that or that was your background. But as someone like me with an engineering background, rarely would you find someone saying, Well, I want to just, you know, work at banks and financial services and that's what I want to do. Uh, with an engineering background at least. So <clears throat> so no, the answer is no. Uh, but the answer was also very clear that this is not forever. These are <laughs> jobs that are gonna help me, um, you know, uh, fund myself or push myself, put myself through school, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and it would get me somewhere. And, and the, the idea was enjoying those experiences along the way, uh, and I'm very grateful for them because mm-hmm. I think um, when, when you start like that, there's a different level of appreciation of the things that you become blessed with throughout your life after. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I became extremely blessed with with one of them which is um, as I mentioned I actually met my my wife in one of those jobs because um, it was abroad it was during the summer and I was working for Disney um, and and my wife is Mexican so she she um, she was coming from Mexico so the, the chances of of that happening is not something that you kind of think about or you plan for mm. um and and here we are um, One years later, and three kids. Amazing. And so it's those
1: random forks in the road that you've never expected that kind of create this. It's sort of like life happens to you for a certain period of time, and then eventually you start realizing that you can start making life happen for you in different ways. And um, we always love to hear, you
2: know,
1: very few of my guests have, set out to be one thing and have always been that thing mm-hmm. there's a there's definitely a period of of discovery and almost even curious to to get a sense of um what you might call that in from a from a design perspective yeah what what stage is what, what part of the you know design if if you were to label life as sort of like a journey and in the discovery is it just
2: like is that just user discovery or? I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a stage. I think it's an iterative process. Okay. It just happens that you're, you're almost refining that cycle by time. So right. you're constantly discovering something about yourself. You're changing um, or maybe you're building something around your character. But I find that by age and by time, you, you, uh, you learn more. You you understand your sp- your strengths and weaknesses, and you can uh, leverage them to your advantages. And so, yeah. so I think it, the loop continues. It's just a refined loop or a refined process that you built over time um, of of uh, of self discovery and understanding uh, what do you want and what you don't have any tolerance for, um, or what's your threshold in certain things, and that comes from um, failures in some cases let's let's call it what it is and, and there's not nothing wrong because that's that's how you learn it's through it's it's through those failures that you uh you create learning right um and i'd love
1: to kind of double click on you know your career so far um and we've we've touched on some sort of highlight moments and some memories but maybe just walk us through you know your how you got to where you are today, basically. And we don't have to double click too deep on, on some areas, but um, yeah, just a high level, You know, this is, this is how I got
2: to where I am today. Sure. So I, I always thought of myself at a young age as a person that solves problems. That's how I saw myself. I'm a problem solver. You know, it's that kind of self image that you have, if you were to describe yourself. I enjoy solving problems. So I saw engineering was um, the way for me to become, or to have that uh, self-image sort of manifest. Um, so, so I did um, I did a computer systems engineering degree, and while I was doing that, I uh, started taking some elective courses in a very, um, I wouldn't say random, but very uh, different topic, which was uh, linguistics. Mm-hmm. So started as like, oh, this this course that I can. Uh, you know, take or add to my electives, and then I was like, "Oh, this is really cool. I want to have more of it." And it was my first kind of window into social sciences and 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 and, and cognitive uh, understanding and why people make certain decisions and 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 psychology and behavior and so on. But I didn't make much of it. You know, I, I kind of started my career um, very much on a technical track. Mm-hmm. You know, my first job, I was. Um, kind of a interesting place to be, but I was uh, building fire spread simulation models. Uh, so quite technical. It was about predicting. It was about predicting where a fire would spread, and how to have people respond to it. So, um, so I took, I would say, a somewhat typical path. Uh, you know, becoming a, a software engineer, a tech lead, an architect, um, then moving into management, software development manager. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of the time it was, it was this curiosity itch that I had. I was, I was always asking myself, where are these problems that I'm solving coming from? Are they the right problems to solve? Uh, who actually decides that this is the set of problems that we need to focus on and, and why? So that, that curiosity itch combined with this deep um, search for meaning, why? Why am I doing this? What's the purpose? Is this the right thing to be done? Those questions. Um, and, and that naturally is what moved me into the left or to the left in the process and got me into design. I <laughs> didn't know it was called design at the time. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to not just be a problem discoverer, but also or not, not just be a problem solver, but also be a problem discoverer. <laughs> uh, someone that discovers problems rather than just solve. Right. Um, so, so that's that's what got me into design first as a practitioner, and then uh, later on as, as also a design leader. Um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about um, coaches that never played, um, and and what does it mean? Because I think it it's extremely important to have practiced, um, or played a game before you coach in it. Because there's there's an immense amount of respect and empathy and perspective. Uh, an understanding that comes from that, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then I I wanted to get better, and I realized that I was also doing that, just not knowing that I was doing it. I wanted to get better at orchestrating value and and delivering value for businesses and for customers. Um, but I wanted to be really good at that, and that's what really got me into product management. So so combined, you know, it started with with very much um, a problem solver perspective. Uh, in engineering, uh, went through a cycle of uh, discovery around design and solving for people and making impact for humans, and then uh, perfecting or completing the trifecta of getting quite deep into product management and the ability to orchestrate value at scale um, and grow businesses. So that's that's a little bit on on this hybrid experience, but definitely to your question earlier, it was not something um, that you can actually plan, you know, it's, uh, and I think it confuses people sometimes, but you can, you can, uh, because people typically want to put you in a bucket, you want to say, is, is this person more of design or product or an engineer? Um, but you can use it to your advantage as well and, 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 uh, frame it as a way where you, where you got that unique perspective around all three areas that connect. Um, and, and that's, that's what got me to, to, you know, what I'm, what I'm doing today. And, and that's a little bit on my journey. Um, so I hope that, hope that answers your question.
1: No, no, I definitely, and, and appreciate, appreciate that, uh, that context. The, in, you've had a really diverse experience in terms of types of industries that you've worked in as well, which is interesting and kind of going from being that technical to, going to the product and design side which is still technical but less Mm. less on the hands-on i'm going to write code to to solve a problem you go from that to well are we writing the right pieces of code you know in the first place and kind of asking that question like why are we doing this and um in terms of, you mentioned one thing that I kind of wanted to touch on briefly that we we haven't necessarily talked about, but it's actually something closer to me is like you mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a certain part where, you know, you, you have to be a player to eventually become a coach and not mm-hmm. necessarily to debate that because I mean, that's not the purpose of today's chat. Uh, and, and I'm biased towards believing that as well because i myself am in this part of my career stage where i am letting go of being the player and figuring Mm -hmm. out how to be the coach that is exclusively the coach and if we're going to use sports as a metaphor which you already are it's like previously the value you brought was by showing up to practice every day and being with the team and you know, we'll use basketball shooting baskets and practicing layups and and whatnot to then, you know, showing up to practice every day, but it's a completely different practice and that it's, it's jarring. And uh, there's a lot of people that make the jump where they go from being top performing individual contributor or top performing player to coach. And they don't necessarily pivot everything that it is that they're doing. So given you know, your experience having been, you know, top performing player uh, and then eventually moving into very senior level positions at very prestigious brands, how like you've been on that journey. So I'm curious, even just for myself and for others, because there's a lot, I think there's in the startup and tech space, a lot of people go through that shift very quickly of going from being a player to a player coach, then to a coach. And there's definitely aspects of that journey that you have to let things go. I'm curious, what have you found in your career that was like, had I done this sooner, I would Mm -hmm. have have leveled up and I would have been able to bring, you, you talked about bringing value to the business in other ways. And you go from being a person that I bring value to the business by scoring points to I bring value to the business by helping other people score points. How did you make that jump? How did you what are some lessons you learned along that journey?.
2: Great. Um so I think first, what i would what I would say is is that it's definitely not for everyone. It's the the idea of um, of molding and and becoming more of a a leader um, and, I, and i I subscribe mostly to the servant leadership uh, philosophy. Um, but but some some people are quite content. Uh, to be in an individual contributor role. But what we do sometimes, which I think is very damaging, is that we force them into a leadership track because that's the only way they can grow their careers. So they they figure, okay, well, I want to grow and I can't grow anymore. And um, They look at things like compensations, like titles, like mandates, like scope, and I can't grow my career unless I become mm-hmm. a people's leader. So there there's a lot of reluctant uh leaders out there that have been pushed into this direction in their career not by choice but um, but by force or by necessity. So I think that's an important distinction to make that that this idea of a dual track where you can continue to grow as an individual, uh, whether you choose a leadership track or an individual contributor track there shouldn't the, the option should be offered to you and I find that in a lot of cases especially within design and product, is that we we kind of force people to pick that because that's the only way they can advance so that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, I think an important uh, first point for me the defining I don't know if it's, a, it's if it was a moment but the defining moment for me was um, you know I, I always love building great products that's that's something that I love uh, to do and I I, I always love doing that um but I realized at some point that I love building people that build great products even more Mm. I think if you come to that realization, uh, is it's it's uh, it's definitely a sign that you're ready to to make that change, or you're ready to to kind of pivot into more of a leadership track, because that's where 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 the a different kind of satisfaction is going to come. Yeah. And for me personally, it's uh, it's the ability to grow people and and see them become better thinkers and makers in their craft, because <laughs> I think that's the only way. Any organization can scale. Uh, because if you're there solving problems, if you're there scoring points to your example all the time, it doesn't scale. At some point, uh, you need you need to create an environment or create a system that creates play, players that can play well and can score more points and can think better and can and can make better in the craft. So so I think that's um that's I guess my my second point around why is it even Useful to think about it that way, to think about scalability. But one of the one of the things that I learned the hard way, and maybe maybe um, um, would be relevant, is how do you pull back, especially that period where you you're moving from an individual contributor to a people's leader. How do you stop yourself from saying, "Oh, this is how I'm going to do it," and here it is, and solving the problem yourself. And a great way to do that is do um, is, is that I, I I spent a lot of time. Uh, looking at how do I ask better questions? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's that art and science of uh, realizing that you're trying to jump into a way of solution mode and rather thinking about how can I reframe what I want to say and allow someone else to go through their experiential uh, learning and come up maybe with a, even a better way to do something. So I think it's uh, I, I kind of channeled that energy that mm-hmm. I had from being an individual contributor to becoming, to say, well, if you want to be better at becoming a people's leader, invest your time to be, a better, um, to be better at asking the right questions. Um, there's lots of references on on books that I can give, but it's, uh, there's one in particular that I, that I really like. It's called uh, A More Beautiful Question, uh, and it's, uh, it really focuses on how do you frame uh, your question, uh, and and I think that helped me a lot. Nice. No,
1: that's, uh, I mean, selfishly, that's very helpful for me. (laughs) It, it kind of touches some points on, um, touches some points that I feel like I can, I can kind of double click on myself. And, um, a friend of mine went through the Y Combinator, sorry, the, the on-deck fellowship. And out of it, he... He was like, oh, there's so many great things. But the thing that stood out most for me was the mom test. Um, mm-hmm. and that's definitely centered around asking questions in the right way. Or my takeaway was like, don't ask leading questions the way you ask questions from a product development perspective. So I guess what you're saying is you can apply similar philosophies as a leader so that you can ask questions in a way so that the people you have the privilege of leading can come to answers without you just sort of spoon feeding them the answers. Is that, is that, um, am I understanding kind of your philosophy right there or?
2: Oh, a hundred percent. I think the, uh, the amount of overlap where you can take some fundamental principles that come from, from design and from product. Um, so what, what you're talking about is a lot of it is, is how do you do, um, and you think about mixed, uh, research methods and, and how do you ask uh, questions correctly, and it's not something that you get trained on in, in school. No. So, so that's, that's design research. Um, one aspect at least of it, uh, making sure that you're not asking leading questions, you're asking more open questions over closed, um, uh, making sure that, that when you're asking these questions, you're not, uh, they, they're, they're not demeaning in a way they're not uh, closed in a way where you're open um, to what comes, you don't have this expert mindset, but you take the mindset of someone who's looking to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lots of that, that comes from, and uh, and the way you even take notes on how people answer or think about things. You apply your own bias, bias <laughs> to the, the question process on how they take, how you take, uh, notes back from their answers. So there's tons of learnings that we can apply. But in particular, you just touched on a, on a point in particular, I think, um, Applying uh, fundamental design principles and and into your own life has been something that I I was always curious about and um, and and you can kind of take that um, process of design thinking if I if I may use it may use the word and it's becoming uh, quite controversial on what does it mean but if you take the process of even prototyping mm-hmm. so when we think about prototyping a lot of time people think about well you're prototyping a product but it's not necessarily the case you could be prototyping an experience yeah a great example of that is um you're trying to find uh, a place to live in a new neighborhood in a new city and maybe in a new building or a, um house and you find an airbnb uh, within that where you can go you can try it out you can feel what does it what does it um what does it look like to commute to work every day? Do you like the neighborhood? Do you like the, maybe it's a building, the amenities around you uh, and all of that. So that's an example of prototyping an experience. Um, and, I, and I think the first uh, uh, kind of book or reference that kind of put this all together was um, was a book called uh, Designing Your Life. Uh, and I think it was it was a very interesting spin on that. Taking those design principles, uh, and and the process of design thinking and applying it to life experiences rather than product development.
0: Hmm.
1: And I mean it. It's. I think just in general, it's nice that it you can zoom out with that framework and apply it to to so many different things. And so it's almost as though if you've chosen the. The profession or you've fallen into the profession of design and product, you you naturally have this tool that you can almost apply to so many different things and almost becomes a philosophy is now how you look at everything. And uh, in one of those pieces, you know, going back to my own career, like I, I spent 10 years literally selling nuts and bolts and I had never applied any sort of life design thinking. I was just truly going with the flow, trying to make the best of any opportunity. And, you know, now if you tell me to look at a particular piece of hardware, I can tell you like the specific name and I could tell you the material just by looking at it. And those are random skills that I can still kind of apply today. But when you go down this, when you go down the path of teaching yourself design, and I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to to make and kind of the purpose is like so few organizations and so few people take the opportunity to learn more about design and product, even though they're at tech companies and figure out like, oh, how can I use these frameworks, um, in a day-to-day basis, which kind of leads, leads me to that kind of inception point of where I was like, well, what do we, what can you and I talk about? and early on in the conversations we were having from an interview perspective, it was very clear that you, you had a really clear idea on how things were done, but you also had this openness to other ideas and you were like, this is how I think about it. And this is how I apply it. And then I think you mentioned, you were like, well, I've got this manifesto. <laughs> I was like, What's, uh, obviously manifestos have like an interesting connotation, like from a linguistic perspective, but maybe we can just kind of like start there and, and just get a sense of like, okay, well, how can we talk about this manifesto or this, you know, way of thinking in relation to people operations? Um, and yeah, kind of help us unpack, you know, your framework and and your way of looking at things and. How we can apply it to the people outside
2: yeah absolutely um so so how how did this matter you're absolutely right as well on the, on the word and 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 what it means and and this is I think uh half of the battle every time you speak about any topic, I think it's critical and it's one of those system thinking skills to apply what's called distinction um which is what the thing is and what the boundary around it um is and what it's not mm-hmm. so because uh, a lot of the conversations and debates the debates we have uh in organizations at home uh in society are because we never define uh the terms that we use so so they've become very subjective the debates on the top but now back to the manifesto <laughs> <laughs> without without going there um so so on a, on a personal level and i think it's it's uh, it's almost impossible to kind of separate uh, who you are outside work and, and, and your life experiences from um, corporate environments and companies that you work for and so on. So personally, I've seen uh, humans uh, struggle with, with all kinds of uh, injustice in, in my lifetime. And uh, I kind of made this resolution or uh, commitment that I would refuse to let this fear indifference, and egotism, um, win over values that I care about, values um, like courage, empathy, and, and humbleness. So, so as I was thinking through that, I, I asked myself, and back to the questions, and, and, and uh, a great way is just to also apply it to yourself and, and ask yourself questions as well to, to unlock some learnings. Uh, and, I, and I asked myself, how might we empower the, the courageous, creative, compassionate, Change makers, lots of C's Mm -hmm. um, of the world to be better uh, to make better decisions every day, and that's how uh, this manifesto around empowering the people uh, was born. And it's it's kind of this big, uh, bold thing that I that I kind of use, but they kind of represent my own values and 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 principles that I uh, and and we can maybe get into the difference between the two, but like uh, generally speaking, things that I would use. Uh, as a, uh, a set of beliefs or intentions mm-hmm. um, and, and would help me make decisions in an objective way and would uh, also help me uh, communicate to others what I'm about and what do I believe in. And they get to make a choice to say this objective way of uh, living or being within organizations or companies Uh, resonates and I want to be part of it or or not. So that's a little bit about the manifesto. What does it mean? How did it start? And where does it come from? A personal um, perspective. So there's definitely
1: a point where having intention and having values really makes an impact on an individual. I'm seeing that with my own life right now and i've gotten to you know my own reasons for that um however you coming up with this manifesto i'm i'm curious like is there an origin story to you know why you put it all down and we could talk a bit about that before mm-hmm. we we start talking about how how you how a people ops person could apply you know the high level concepts of of this manifesto to their to their daily practice or even to themselves.
2: Yeah, I, I mean I look it's it's not one point in time. I think it's it's uh it's one of those things where it kind of evolves. But uh, but I always I always have this um I and I and I think this is something that is innate to any human being. It's something that we're we're born with. Some people call it the intuitive knowledge or something that you have. But but the the metaphor that I that I'd like to use maybe to explain what it is 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 imagine yourself waking up one day on a train on a moving train. You have no idea how you got on that train you you can't remember anything um, let's just say we don't we don't know what happened no no judgment here before mm. you just found yourself on a moving train uh, and what would be The question, the first question that you probably ask yourself, yeah, like, why am I here? Why am I here? Great. Why am I here? Sometimes people would say, okay, that's a very important question. Where am I going? Mm -hmm. Um, And why was I chosen for this? If someone actually chose me to be on this train, and I think those questions are fundamental. They're very unique to all of us. Finding Mm -hmm. purpose, finding that understanding. Now I think people arrive at asking themselves these questions at different points in their lives um I don't know if I was fortunate uh, or or lucky or maybe maybe not to be asking those questions since I was at a very young age and and maybe it was um maybe there's a there's a bit of a, a, a school story that I'm not sure if i, I guess I'll, I can share it I can share it. you can you can tell me but it's, um <laughs> Uh, I actually grew up, um, so I grew up in different countries, and I, I traveled. Uh, my family traveled, but but one of the places I actually went to school is um, is a place called Sharjah. It's uh, it's in the UAE, um, and I went to an international school um, where uh, where there's a lot of uh, sort of uh, divide between the foreigners and the locals. So it was a very clear camps between the uh, expats and the families and foreigners working and the locals that are there. So one of the things that used to happen was uh, there was a significant amount of, um, uh, not segregation in a, in a sense of uh, no mixing, but it was, uh, it, you know, the idea of uh, the locals owning the school or owning mm-hmm. the facilities and so on. So soccer was a prime example. Uh, you'd find a bunch of foreigners, foreigner kids playing, and then one of the local kids would come and say, foreigners out, we want the pitch. You know, we're, we're yeah. playing now. And if you don't, uh, that's where things used to uh, turn into a very, um, uh, I guess, aggressive uh, nature. What was interesting is is in this story, and, and probably some of your... Yours are like, oh, where is this going? Like, uh, what what happened? And maybe they're curious. But it was interesting that that the that I would look at the, the eyes of the teachers at the time, hmm. uh, because that was a very uh, puzzling thing for me uh, on why they were not acting when they're seeing this kind of behavior. And part of it was fear. I you know, for a lot of these teachers, they knew that because. Uh, because of the power some of these kids had and their parents um, who control their employment, they could be put on a plane and sent home anytime, which would affect their uh, you know livelihood and all of that. So so I knew early on that I hated that um, sense of I don't know if it's cowardness or sense of not acting out of courage, uh, even yeah. though you have that fear uh and uh and i can i mean i can talk about my tactics on how do i how did i build that courage to face some of these uh bullies in in school and and the process of uh many fights that i got into as a as a child um and the amount of ketchup that i had to claim existed on my uh on my shirt when I went home uh, to convince uh, my parents that I wasn't fighting and it was just ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> so we can go into that, but I think what I really realize is that if there are some values that are very important to me, even at that young age, this, this is like, I, I was maybe seven, six, yeah. around, that, around that time, is that courage is, is, is up there. It's really up there and there was something innately, just like that that train example where where you, you asked yourself that question innately, i said i i would never uh want to be that that uh, person that has no courage to act and do the the difficult thing because it's it's injustice and i can't really stop myself from from um from acting on what i believe in so that's that's kind of maybe maybe a turning point uh where where this happened and then maybe later on we can talk about my philosophy on how i i kind of uh observed a lot, which is a very uh, important skill that I learned, observation, understanding patterns and things like that, and being able to come up with a strategy around it. So long story short, not a specific point, but uh, in time. But I think that that experience also shapes you and you start realizing who you want to be and who you don't want to be and what kind of belief system or way are you going to use in your life uh, to make moral judgments, because otherwise it's a very subjective um, uh, way of thinking, so I wanted to make sure that I put that down, especially in a corporate environment, and say, "Here, here is what we can say is the way we're going to make decisions as a team, or this is what we stand by." So it's clear to everyone; it doesn't change by time. It's not, uh, it's not subjective, um, and and I think that's very important. I'm now I'm going on a tangent, so I'll stop myself.
1: No, no, <laughs> it's well. I mean, first off, I appreciate you being you know, candid about where that starts, right? And for you, it sounded like it started at a very early age and it was relating to everything. It was to life. And then kind of zooming in, what you learn in life impacts what you want to build in your life. Eventually, to a certain extent, a large part of it is spent working, building. And so it's important that, A, you're doing things you want to do in the first place. So hopefully that's you know, what everybody is working towards in some way, shape, or form. Now, getting really focused on the, the, you know, what you've learned about, you know, values and, and principles and applying that to say an, an environment. And I'll go back to kind of what, what sparked my curiosity was when we were talking about, when I was asking leadership based questions, um, you know when we were interviewing you you had not many people have a framework mm-hmm. right and and i typically myself i'm biased towards people who have thought a considerable amount about what is their leadership style have they have they read a single book on leadership that provide like or is it did they just fall into it and mm-hmm. they managed to do a good job of it because they have enough eq and iq to to really, you know, make an impact there, but they're still somewhat aimless. Whereas the difference with, with yourself was like, I didn't just read a, you know, one book, I read a lot of books and I've also been through a lot of experiences and I've thought about this very concretely and I'm, I'm just curious how, and in that, in that, in that interview process, we dove deeper and it was more in terms of like, well, how do you take some of this stuff? And you just kind of talked about how you partnered with people in HR and how you partnered with people in, in like the, the recruitment side to truly help them apply design to their own experiences. And so what you, you were sort of like zooming out and saying, well, you were seeing problems, you were discovering problems that were impacting you in the hiring face place. And you were like, well, I'm going to help them. So I guess You know, if I'm a people ops person who wants to just apply some level of design thinking, I'll say it, even though I don't know that like it's a controversial term, I'm not close enough to this space, but where, where would you start? Like, how would you, if I don't have the luxury necessarily of having someone like yourself on my team who, who would definitely be passionate about talking about this and, you know, put your hand up in a way to say like, I'll support you and, you know help you along this like journey of you discovering design through your own part of the business, where, where could someone start? You know, how, how should someone start and and where should they start?
2: I, I think, um, I, I would say the first and the most important thing to start with is building trust and it's a, it's not an, it's, it's easier said than done because before you embark on, on any, uh, meaningful work. Trust needs to be established, so so maybe three tactics that I usually do to uh, build that trust at, at speed, but um, uh, that worked for me. One is understand their problems, uh, and uh, really understand their business. So so if you're or if you're someone within design and, and you're working with someone in a in a function, a specific function within HR, understand what they're going through. Um, Maybe it's a performance enablement or a performance review process that they're trying to reimagine, but they don't know where to go, what to start, what questions, what problems do they have. So you understand their domain and, and understand the problems they're trying to solve. Uh, and that's going to help a lot because that's going to help you frame problems from their perspective. So the, the concept of problem framing um, comes in handy because it's about sponsoring a problem, not sponsoring a solution. So if you can, Understand um their domain and what they're going through and what they want to do, and frame problems that resonate with them, that opens up uh, possibilities, um, that are that are framed as a question that don't have a solution baked in. Some of the mm-hmm. golden rules about problem framing is is what I'm uh, referring to. Uh, then you got them on board. You got them on board because you you took the time you build the credibility through, um. Through, our, through speaking their language and and giving them that element that I understand you, and I hear you, and here's the problem that I think we can partner on solving for you, uh, and it shows. So that's that I think is one. The other one is, is usually doesn't start, this idea of building trust doesn't start and end and, and overnight. I think it's a lot of micro-promises that you can work on and fulfill to build that credibility slowly. So find mm-hmm. these like small things. I don't like the word "quick wins" because it, it it sometimes it comes with this um, connotation around how it's meaningless or it's things that that you know it's uh, it's the low hanging fruit. We have a lot of metaphors. I even created the use of metaphors gone wrong uh, to kind of make fun of that. But um, but but the idea is is that you know you you got to find some small things that you can promise, and by time mention that you fulfill these promises mm-hmm. and people would understand that this consistency in your behavior and delivering on your promises uh is is a reason why they need to trust you so that's i think the second thing on on building trust um and i think there's there's this uh, refreshing v- vulnerability that we are missing in the corporate world now where mm. uh, being vulnerable and being um open to people uh, about what you don't know uh almost makes people sometimes feel um uh, they're, they're surprised by it because we've we've, we've done a lot of uh, layering on what we say and how we say it and so on. and it's kind of refreshing for people to feel that sense of like this is this is a human I'm talking to, and they're genuinely authentically uh, interested in helping me. Why would I not trust them? They're not going to mm-hmm. create any kind of harm. There's no concept of self-harm here, I'm safe. I'm safe and I can trust this person. So I think it, it starts with all of that work on laying the foundation of trust um, as a first step. And the second step, I think, is once you get into the work together is identifying and framing the, the problem itself. You know, the, mm-hmm. this, this is where problem framing as a discipline uh, becomes very important and definition because it's everything. If you don't define the problem right and you don't get the alignment, uh, around it, everybody's going to be moving in a in a different direction, um, and and I and I think uh, maybe maybe related as well to this, and as kind of a third step, you establish an element of trust. You've worked with them to frame the right problem, and you applied a lot of these uh, golden principles of what makes for a good problem, which is another good question to ask. Um, you also start identifying what are some of the journeys that they care about the most. And, and that is is in itself like something that can talk about for quite some time. But what, what are the human journeys that the experiences that someone is um, is going through to establish a specific goal that mm-hmm. they have? So whether it's applying for a job and usually these journeys, the naming of these journeys is very important. And starting with a verb makes it always easier on naming these journeys or finding a product. Buying a product, uh, uh, signing up for an account, whatever it is that they're trying to do, uh, it's it's uh, it's much easier to frame and and put the name in perspective to say, well, here's the list of things that you have or you can provide today. Where 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 do we want to start and why and how does that relate to the problem that we frame together? So I think mm-hmm. those are like good places that can springboard things like research uh on uh, bringing in insights on existing pain points or elements that that would um be looked at in the future, but I think without those three things in place, the trust, the right problem framed and an understanding of the journeys that you offer or the the value that you provide it's it's difficult um to do everything else that comes after well I'll stick to three in the threes.
1: I feel like you could probably like write a book about everything you just said in you know on its like there's enough content to unpack there like each each of those three areas is essentially like not even a chapter but like an entire section of chapters on on how to um i have so
0: many things
1: i don't i don't even know where to double click on there's a fascinating part there where you were describing something i'm like oh that sounds like what people should start doing in sales in terms of like Mm -hmm. just you know there's a certain level of even for myself, as a as an individual responsible for making decisions on which companies or you know external partners we partner with, I I am biased towards the person mm-hmm. that is honest about their product in a way that doesn't promise me the entire world. Like, oh, this is going to solve all the problems. Hey, Martin, I realize you're calling me because or you're you're interested in this product because you you know you're interested in this background check software because um you have background checks to do um but when i talk to some you're like you know what x part of our platform sucks don't use it mm-hmm. uh there's automatically like trust built there but I, that happens so rarely and then i am i i do become and there's just so many little even even from a recruitment perspective and i'm kind of being selfish for the audience here but the my approach that I feel like has worked, so I'm biased on on that front, but to to sell people on an opportunity and say everything is amazing just instantly, I think, turns folks off, right? Because there's, there's no vulnerability in regards to, like, the problems that are going on at a company, right? People talk about culture from the perspective of, uh, like, this is all the great reasons. So you're telling me there's no bad reasons. So you're not, you're not even giving me a sneak preview into some of the things I might need to, you know, give me an opportunity to say, what am I not going to like about this experience? Right. Uh, and that kind of funnels to your, to your point about, you know, the journey that the human goes on and essentially a career and a job is exactly that it's a journey from, mm-hmm. from start to finish. And it's an interesting one from a recruitment perspective because hundreds if not thousands of people sign up to be on a particular journey, only one or two of them get to go on that journey. Meanwhile, uh, you know, of those hundreds or thousands of people, those are all people that got an opportunity to interact with a brand or a company Mm -hmm. and their frame of reference. It's, it's reverse marketing, right? You're so the companies are so interested. We got to spend so much money to, to get, People to like and appreciate our brand and the amount of money that is spent on the candidate experience side of things you know in comparison it's like we've we've got active engaged folks maybe they're not going to buy the product or software now but they might in two weeks yeah. they might in two months or they might in two years and that's that's an important interaction is probably the most important interaction with the brand especially if it is obvious that you are a, a good candidate for a particular role. So there's, again, so much to, to double click on. And I myself am going on a few tangents here, but, uh, what, what I kind of want to like, when you were saying all of this, the thing that the, the sort of negative, like thought that was kind of going through my head is like, all of this is all well and good. Mm but how often do you get the opportunity to slow down which essentially that is if if you are, if you have to ask questions about a problem that means that you're not trying to implement a solution and implementing a solution feels like you're solving the problem because you're like cool this is the obvious choice blah 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 and you start solving problems based on that and nothing really changes you 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 continue You continue solving problems the way you always have. So I think you see where I'm going with this is like, there is a certain amount of buy-in that you have to get to say, hey, let's stop and think about how we're solving this problem in the first place to see if we're even solving it in the right way. And I'm curious, you know, I'm sure that's a problem you experience in design regardless, right? Like, hey, the signups are fine. We don't need to change how, you know, what the journey of a signup looks like. Let's just get the sign up page done and move move on to getting the rest of the product built. I'm curious how you've like how you could help arm the listeners here to to sort of give them that ability so that they can tell the rest of the business, hey, we're gonna pause or slow down so that we can speed up or at least do things right in the long term
2: mm-hmm. um. So there, there is always a couple of ways where you can deal with that, and maybe I'll, I'll talk about two. Um, one that I think helped me quite a lot is the idea of experimentation, um, and specifically the notion of prototyping—not even prototyping, but prototyping—and hmm. um, the idea of a prototype. It's, it's, uh, it's basically a, a pre-prototype comes from pre as in before. A prototype but it also comes from pretend so pretend to typing uh, mm. so you basically pretend uh, through an artifact uh, that something exists whether it's a product a solution maybe it's the desired solution that someone wants to put in place uh, and you test how people would react to it with what's called skin in the game so it's not about opinions or um, you know, focus groups that you can run, or people saying this is great, or comments or likes. No, it's actually through something of value that they give away. So it could be money that they put down, effort, time, their contact, etc. I mean, obviously, this uh, is a well well documented um, way of thinking, and 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 the guy that kind of coined this term and and worked on it was uh, Alberto Savoya. He's the uh, he was the ex-director of innovation at Google, and he he wrote a book called The Right It. And his dilemma was, how do you how do you find the right thing to work on, and how do you make a decision to say this is the right thing or not? And he kind of put a lot of ideas that already existed around this concept of prototyping together. So what I would do in context, and how would I use prototyping if I, if someone is coming with a solution, a retail company saying, hey, we're gonna um, we're gonna launch a uh, laundry service. Or we're going to actually uh, have a subscription model for weekly outfits, rather than asking people to come buy t-shirts from us. So, so silently and quietly, rather than refuse and say, no, we're not, we're not going to do that because it's not the right problem. Because you don't want to necessarily um, get into a subjective argument. The best way to go about it is to run an experiment. It's a cheap experiment. Don't spend more than a couple hundred dollars on it. And you almost create the service or a facade of the service which is one of the prototyping techniques um sometimes there's uh, there's there's other techniques and they all have kind of weird names uh, there's one called false door or fake door there's one called the pinocchio um there's even one called the one night stand which which doesn't have anything to do with you know the the other meanings around it so so the point is there's different techniques that you can apply in prototyping and you put on an experiment that would take one or two days as if this solution existed, and you will see how people would, would react to it. So you could create something like a Google ad or, or a landing page where you advertise this as if, uh, as if the product exists, and you can sign up for weekly outfits, as an example. And then you'll see how many people are actually signing up, putting their emails, which is the skin in the game mm-hmm. around it, and bring that data back. And, and from that, you can measure based on what you, uh, what, what you projected and you write basically what's called an XYZ statement uh, extending for the percentage of how this market, even internally, will adopt this solution or product or service or idea. Y is a description of that market and Z is the action that you want them to take. So, so I think doing experiments like this with skin in the game that are based on behaviors would save you a lot of not just time and money, but would also give you all the um, armor, all the uh, evidence to come back and say, "Listen, this is not going to work," or "It's actually a great idea," and you, y- you, you actually, uh, you're right because when we conducted such experiment, this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 more of the fast food world, I think there is an example that I really like, which which came from McDonald's, and um, and uh, at some point they were thinking about launching the Mac Spaghetti, you know, selling the Mac Spaghetti for six fifty. dollars Will people buy spaghetti from us? And then they had all the data, you know, they were very much on the solution orientation side. You know, people love uh, Italian cuisine. People love spaghetti. It's going to be a hit. All these ROI charts going up, you know, like uh, this is a no-brainer until someone su- suggested that they run an experience, uh, that they run an experiment and in fact, a prototype. So what they did was they they took a branch with decent... Uh, traffic uh, in the US uh, about 2500 people coming in and they put a, a picture uh, a photo on on top of you know people coming in the drive through area in the menu and they had a an image of the max spaghetti for 650 now they didn't they didn't really have any max spaghetti they didn't really develop the uh, the process for selling it or anything but they put it out there and when people used to order it, they they trained their front staff using their POS systems to say, well, what do you usually do when you're out of an item? And they said, well, we give them a free item or we give them $3 and we press on this function here. And they said, for, for today, it's going to be Mac Spaghetti. So as, yeah. as people will go to the second window, they would say, sorry, we're out of Mac Spaghetti, but we're going to give you um, something in, instead for this price for free. Uh, So they would manage the disappointment and the risk that will come with it. It wasn't that disappointing because people never were there to begin with to order the Mac Spaghetti because they didn't know it existed. Um, And they learned that uh, the Mac Spaghetti will be a huge flop. And (laughs) nobody would actually buy Mac Spaghetti um, or or spaghetti from McDonald's with the exception, interestingly, in in the Philippines. That was the only place where, and and I think it's sold there maybe until today. So, so the idea here is the is the experimentation gives you that ability to re-adjust or reframe the thinking of your stakeholders to make it more objective and through data. And you have to do that at speed. And I think prototyping is a great way um, to do that. And then I think the 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 second thing that I would mention outside experimentation is that sometimes you have to do the uh, you you have to build that credibility before you start saying stop. Uh, or or we we should do this, you need to build that credibility, which goes back to trust. So sometimes yeah. it's about doing something to show that you're capable of doing it. And you say, well, here's is, here is a better way that we can do it. Uh, mm-hmm. And I find that people respond to options much better than asking them open questions in some cases. So if you show, if you show a, a series of options that they can consider, uh, sometimes it's easier than asking them to start from scratch because they maybe feel lost or intimidated uh, so you can kind of give them some uh, prompts or ways where they can uh, g- give them the tools to think rather than just asking them to think about something without helping them along the journey.
1: I'm I'm laughing because that's definitely a lesson I've taken from parenting and provided it in, in the corporate world as well. Like nothing has been easier. Mm-hmm. Nothing's harder than saying, hey, can you go get, you know, go put some pants in and in a shirt on Versus me taking two extra seconds and saying, do you want the pink shirt or the yellow shirt? And you want, want the socks, fuzzy right? pants or the, the you know, the other pants. And uh, I've, for myself, part of that learning is like applying the same principle to be like, here are the options we have. Team, boss, leader, CEO, whatever the case might be. And just saying like, these are the things, here's the traditional route we can go down. You know, even with some data points and everything like that. But, um no, fully agree. Another part of me was like, oh my goodness, how many times have I been pretotyped in, in the real world? Like it was like this matrix moment of like seeing beyond the veil and just being like, how how often have I been tested without knowing it and supported some sort of like anytime I tried to order something, it wasn't available, is that just like them testing to see if this is gonna be a popular product or not? So um <laughs> you've changed my perspective on my retail consumer product goods right, right. experiences for sure. So thank you for that. Uh, I think, <laughs> um, one, one thing to, to kind of, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, like, uh, kind of tongue in cheek there that like you could, you know, even just for that two minute piece on the three things that you, you can do, um, you could write a book about it, but reality is you, you have written a book. Um, mm-hmm on on design and and I think that was relatively new information for me but I would uh love to kind of hear about it would love to to know you know how translatable it would be for for our audience um for the people people group and HR and recruitment professionals and yeah just, just tell me tell me about that I'd I'd love
2: to hear more yeah sure um yeah so the, so the book's name and uh, is is product people uh, journal of laughter and tears <laughs> uh, so it, it's it's really aimed to help humans uh ponder on their own story with what we've been talking about with product with design with leadership and and my hope with the book is is to offer or give people a new perspective on being a, a human in a soulless corporate world as as i describe it and uh, possibly have have a good laugh in the process. Uh, and it's, uh, it's meant to launch sometime in March. So hopefully, it's, it's, it's also available on Amazon. Uh, and it, it'll be there. But I, it's a lot of reflection. So it's actually um, written like it's a, it's a buffet where where you can kind of um, pick or open the book anywhere. And there's an entry and likely with an illustration uh, that describes uh, a concept or something. And, and they're grouped into uh logically um logical sections so there's there's a section called um uh uh, collections as an example so these are collections or guidelines on things writing good okrs for example or how do you frame problems Uh, so there's an entry on that um or how do you spot uh, uh, certain type of uh cultural poisons uh or or challenges and, and what do you look for so so there's there's entries like that there's um there's a section as an example called fictionary which is a made up dictionary of uh, uh, of words um and and maybe uh diseases uh that exist uh not only in the heart uh, things like ego and and arrogance um uh, but, but also and sometimes in in organizations so how do you deal with that but with Courage, empathy, and humbleness. So, I, I hope it's uh, it's a good read. It's 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 my reflection of the last five years. I kind of put it together, and I wanted to take that also as an opportunity for me to learn uh, the process of what does it take uh, to go through putting your thoughts down, publishing a book. Um, I created two teasers for it, so hopefully uh, more to come. Um, but my hope is, is is the it's a way for us to understand ourselves as human uh, humans working in. Uh, companies and and uh, the corporate world in general, and maybe laugh at ourselves because we we need that
1: yeah no hundred percent and uh, it sounds like you've you've written it from an authentic perspective that that captures some of the ridiculous things that we put up with or do and and someone recently we have in the People People group, which functions predominantly as a Slack community where people can ask questions, we have a feature that was definitely a, a pre type that uh, eventually became a product because it it, it genuinely solved a problem. But it was like, how do people ask anonymous questions? And the MVP version of was that, you know, create a type form and let people ask questions anonymously and just post it on their behalf. And it's become this sort of like regular running feature every month people are reminded of it and we get four or five questions that come through and they're usually the spicier meatier most interesting topics that the community talks about and one of the questions was you know i've got how do i convince my ceo that you know there is bullying in our organization and uh how do i you know and and at first they asked me directly which which was like, well, thank you for thinking that I know the answer to this question but you know admittedly I've not dealt with this uh firsthand, and you know my my thought was like well we can we can post it anonymously and kind of go from there and a ton of great answers came through um but it sounds like your book kind of touches on you know some opportunities to either a reflect on it laugh about it maybe cry about it a little bit but also you know provide some solutions for folks as it, it feels like you're talking about product people but at the end of the day you're talking about humans too and if we 100%. the 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 product that hr recruitment people operations folks put out is is that journey we are the where the guest experience for everyone stay at the organization and, uh, we won't go down the rabbit hole of like hotel metaphors, but I, I always feel like that, that's sort of the, the case. Right. Um, and so no, I'm, I'm curious to, to see, is there any way that folks can stay in touch with you, follow you along your journey if they've, I'm sure they've resonated. You put out great content on LinkedIn on a regular basis, but like, what's, what's the best way for folks to kind of keep in touch with you and, and follow your, your thoughts along the way?
2: Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a couple of, I guess, three, three touch points. Um, one is what you mentioned. So LinkedIn, I think is, is a great way to, to connect and, um, uh, and, and share. Um, I also put up a website, um, for, um, for my public engagements and just a personal more about my, what I, what I talk about uh what I like to talk about my philosophy and so on it's just my name Zero it's uh hours. it's uh <laughs> so they they can they can check it out there um and then of course through some of the writings so so the book uh, hopefully is going to be also available on Amazon um and uh and then, then I do a, a number of public speaking engagements throughout the year um so hopefully they'll they'll see me on some uh virtual or real life pages yeah. uh soon
1: Awesome. Awesome. And so yeah, for, for everyone listening, we'll have links to all of those items in the bio section of Spotify or wherever you choose to to listen to the podcast on. And so no, I just wanted to thank you again for your time today. It was a pleasure catching up. Uh, I learned a bit more about you, uh, which was awesome. And uh, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of the book and read it and highlight it and i got my new amazon kindle now and i'm using that obsessively and there's the Readwise app that that lets you double down and kind of review some of the mental notes there none of this stuff is actually like advertisements it's just like i've i've done with the i'm done with the paperback and i've gone fully digital so we'll see how that goes but no thanks again for for your time today That's all right. thank you
0: And that wraps up another episode of From a People Perspective. If you learned something today and want to join an amazing Slack community of talented HR, recruitment, and operations professionals, head on over to thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. On there, you can sign up to join the Slack community, or get access to a number of incredible resources we've carefully curated on a bounty of relevant topics, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, policies and procedures, and even employment branding. Again. All this can be viewed at thepeoplepeoplegroup.com. It's completely free and pretty awesome. As well, you can find and follow us on both Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, find us at peoplepeoplegrp. And on Instagram, at thepeoplepeoplegroup. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.